Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jefferies, and I am your host for Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Elizabeth Wetmore, debut novelist and author of Valentine, published by our friends at Harper. Elizabeth, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And the first question I have for you is a question I'm asking everyone that I am interviewing this month, and it is a two-part question. Uh, The first part is, how are you handling the changes in the world surrounding the coronavirus? And two, how are you dealing with the marketing of your book at this time? Um, well, first of all, thank you for that first question. I have to admit, it's been a it's been a strange um, it's a strange time, you know. Um, of all the things you would imagine um, happening as your book was coming out, your first book, um, you know, this was not um, you know in my wildest imaginations. And so, I, one of the stranger experiences I've had has been doing podcasts with people and having them say, you know come out of the gate saying let's talk about your book and and all i can think is wait 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 talk about book wait wait but pandemic pandemic how are you doing right. <laughs> yeah how's everyone doing um and so i appreciate that question mm-hmm. we're doing well you know i'm i am incredibly lucky um i i my family you know has been able to hole up at home since the beginning we're in chicago um you know uh we don't have anyone in my family working in the medical field um or waiting tables or providing food for people or deliveries for people. So on the one hand, you know, we're incredibly grateful to all the people who are sort of keeping us fed and safe and saving lives. And on the other hand, um, you know, we're, we're also, um, I waited tables for 12 years. So I've, I, my heart has just been aching for all the people who work in the food service industry, whose, whose, you know, incomes have been totally upended by all of this. So, so we're doing well. We're uh, holed up at home, reading books and listening to music, and everyone's working. My my high school student is taking classes online, and my husband's a high school English teacher, so he's teaching online. And I've been able to hole up in the corner of the bedroom with my desk and kind of keep up with my business. So um, yeah, so very grateful, and and like everyone else, I guess probably. Uh, you know, experiencing a fair amount of sorrow for all of us, for the world, really. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, I want to talk about your book now. This novel, Valentine, starts in February of 1976. It is your debut novel. Elizabeth, how long have you been working on this novel? This is my debut novel, and I'm 52 years old, mm-hmm. so um, so I am so thrilled um, to, to have had, you know, to, to be here, and, um, you know, I know that 52 is not old at all, really, but, um, but I think a lot of times, particularly in American, you know, you know, the American sort of literary scene, um, you know, it can feel like most people have got their books out at 25, 30, 35, 40 at the latest, you know, their debut novels at least. Um, so I'm delighted. I, I began working on this book, um, when I was pregnant with my son, actually, my son is 15 now. So I worked on it for about, 13, 14 years on and off before I sold it. Um, And of course, during that time, I was always working um, and raising my son and, you know, sort of doing the, the 
you know, the things of life. Um, and so I've, I've been working, I worked on it for a long time. I, and I worked on other projects as I was working on this book. I wrote a couple, couple of collections of short stories. Um, but yeah, I, I worked on it for a long time. So I'm thrilled that it's out in the world. Right. Thank you so much. And the novel opens with one of five protagonists, this one being the 14-year-old Gloria. Within the first few pages of Valentine, we encounter Patti Smith's song, Gloria, and this is a song that was playing in my mind for the next several days after I read this novel. Um, Before we talk about Gloria the girl, can you talk about Gloria the song and more broadly about music, rock and roll music particularly's place in this novel? Um, sure. Um, so horses, um, was a, well, I should say, as I've already told you how old I am. So mm-hmm. in, in 1976, I was the same age as some of the, the younger girls who come up later in the book. I'm Deborah Ann Pierce. So I was about nine, 10 years old. And, um, and of course then in West Texas, um, you know, we, we, we had a pretty limited sort of access to music um basically top 40 radio and um and at some point i found the college radio station in my hometown and they had this late night punk show um that they played um from like midnight to four o'clock in the morning and i found that and it changed really the entire trajectory of my life i kind of i've often joked to friends that books and music saved my life as a kid growing up in a pretty isolated oil town you know out in west texas um but um but specifically i i have joked to friends college radio and libraries changed my life so Horses was hugely important to me um, at a pretty young age, and of course, I still love it to this day, and and I love Patti Smith's writing. Um, So, uh, yeah, you know, um, I'm always listening to music when I write, um, because I set the book in 1976, so really, you know, um, quite a a distance in the past, um, I found myself more and more going back to music from that time so uh at some point i fell in love with outlaw country and chris christopherson um and um you know revisited patty smith and uh you know that that has always been the case with me if i looked at any of my short stories right now i could probably tell you what songs i was listening to as i was writing it so i could pull up one short story and say oh i was listening to lou reed when i wrote that you know or oh i was i was I was listening to Chris Christopherson on loop when I wrote this particular chapter. So, right. Is that what you're looking for? It is absolutely. (laughs) I'm not a musicologist. I'm, I am true. When it comes to music, I am truly a dilettante, but in the Mm -hmm. best possible way, which is to say, you know, I'm, I, I, I listen sort of, um, scattershot to the things that I love. Um, and, and of course, um, you know, that, my my access to music of course has gotten better and better all the time as it has for all of us um but when i ordered patty smith's horses back in the day um a million years ago i had to get that by calling a music store in dallas and having it shipped so thank you so much uh, elizabeth and listeners this is no spoiler as this is very very early in this novel 
But the opening chapter, which is both fantastically written and devastating, finds Gloria being raped brutally and repeatedly by a boy who picks her up and drives her to an oil field. Uh, when she comes to after this experience, before she runs for help, we learn from that point forward her name will be Glory. Can you talk to us about the psychology behind this name change? Oh, gosh. Well, I've always had an interest in the importance of the names we choose for ourselves and the names that are given us. And, you know, I wanted to handle that first chapter with a fair amount of sensitivity. So I really avoided, um, you know, um, being too graphic. This, this, this book really begins in the immediate aftermath of what's happened to her. Mm. And that was important to me um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, not the least of which was I, I was, I was mindful of, of what it means to ask a reader to to bear witness to another to a character's suffering and and what my responsibility was as the writer you know and asking the reader to to bear that kind of witness but but specifically you know so one of the one of the sort of little heartbreaks i guess of that opening chapter is that when the book opens the song, the Patti Smith song, is a song that this young woman has loved. Um, she's been listening to it on the college radio station. Um, you know, it's it's been very important to her. It's her name, right? And so, so the kind of the first sort of a sort of subtle tra- tragedy, I think, other than you know, obviously what's happened, is that this you know that this piece of art that's been so important to her has been kind of destroyed, really, um, by by hearing her name in that boy's mouth, you know, as he was attacking her. And so there's a moment in that first chapter where she makes the decision that going forward she'll be called Glory. And it's such a small change, Gloria, Glory, you know. But for her, it means the world. And it's kind of her sort of attempt in this moment to sort of rename herself, to sort of claim a different name for herself. And that's that's interesting to me in general. Um, you know, uh, for, I mean, again, I'm not a psychologist. Mm. <laughs> I'm a fiction writer. So, so many of these decisions are made sort of instinctively and on the page, um, you know. Um, so, but it, but it's seemed important to her and so it was important to me um does that make sense at all it does absolutely and thank you so much um the second chapter of your book valentine elizabeth introduces us to your second protagonist mary rose mary rose is pregnant and she has her little girl at home with her when glory gloria bangs on her front door gloria's rapist soon follows behind in what follows is a scene that reads like something out of the best Cormac McCarthy novels. The rapist confronts Mary Rose, and in this scene, Mary Rose first views this person as a boy, but soon sees him change into a man, seemingly before her eyes. Can you talk to us about this transition in Mary Rose's mind and about what was happening to her perception? It was really important to me to just sort of stay in the scene in this chapter and and really sort of chronicle the, the sort of growing awareness of what exactly has happened and what exactly the threat is. And I and I was interested, you know, the the young man who commits this crime is is only a few years older than Glory, you know. Um in in a in a lot of um 
you know, as I think a lot of people would have, if this boy showed up at your door, you would see a very, very young man, a very, very young white man. And I wanted to just kind of capture the sort of raw terror that Mary Rose experiences um, and and the way that, you know, the more she sees of him, the more she learns of him, the more this situation sort of unfolds in the in the chapter, the more she realizes um, who he is and what he's done and, and, and the way he sort of changes um, in front of her eyes. But I was also kind of interested in the, the kind of the racial implications behind all of this. Um, you know, there's a moment um, at the very beginning of that chapter chapter where Mary Rose imagines what it must have been like for this young man to to wake up in the middle of the oil patch, you know, hungover and um, not completely sure of of what um you know happened himself because he was so drunk the night before and 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 mary rose tries to imagine you know what this must have been like for him and it was and it was important to me as a writer to note that she is not able as a young white woman in this time and place to to really imagine the horror that glory has suffered um you know and so so this young attractive white man shows up at her door and i think that you know she's not able to see him at least immediately as the truly sort of dangerous um figure that he is and um and that was important to me i i was I was mindful. Um, I was mindful from the beginning of the of the implications of choosing to have this crime happen to a young Latina girl in a in a book that is heavily peopled with white folks, mm. and how you know. Um, and, and I guess my sort of responsibility, you know, for for how for being honest and true with how the other characters would have seen her and seen her situation um does that make sense it does it does and listeners we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back with elizabeth wetmore the Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Elizabeth Wetmore, author of the fantastic debut novel and now New York Times best-selling novel, Valentine, published by our friends at Harper. Elizabeth, I want to talk to you about your third protagonist, Corinne. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, and the, I, I think some people would say Corinne. Um, uh-huh. You know, where I come from, we probably would have called her Corinne. I think I've been out for long enough, though, that I tend to pronounce it Corinne. So, all right, we'll go with Corinne then. In Corinne's yeah. first chapter, uh, we get a view of the politics of 1976 in the following passage, and this is a quote. 
she'd be damned if she was going to make small talk with any of these fools, so she watched Carla polish glassware while the men talked football and oil prices. 1976 looked like it was going to be a damned good year for both, and discussed Carter and Ford, hated them both, one was a dipshit and the other was a pussy. Nixon had been their man, and now with Watergate in the rearview mirror, the men were beginning to understand that they'd not only lost their leader, they'd lost their war against chaos and degeneracy. Black Panthers and Mexicans, communists and cult leaders, people who fucked right in the middle of the street in downtown Los Angeles, for Christ's sakes. End quote. And Elizabeth... What does this passage tell us about 1976, and more particularly about Texas in 1976? Well, again, keep in mind that when I wrote that chapter, we were not in the time that we are in now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but something that's always been of interest to me is how deeply conservative that part of the country has always been um, and how you know some of the things that we're seeing happening in that part of the world now um, at the border for example um, are are you know have been punched up by what's going on now but but really it, that that sort of thing has always been there you know and so so I was interested in this group of men in 1976 who, this group of white men in 1976 who, who already sort of sense that they're somehow losing traction in the world um, and, and fear that and, and react against that. Um, and, um, and I don't think in a lot of ways much has changed, honestly. Right. And um, later in the same chapter, Elizabeth Corinne overhears two men talking about Glory and her rape. And um, I think you alluded to some of this earlier, but what one of them says is, what we have here are two competing stories. A textbook case of he said, she said, one man said, just as plain as day. Elizabeth, why today and in 1976 as is illustrated here in this novel why in the cases of rape is the onus always on the woman or the girl in this case to prove that she was raped and not on the man to prove that he did not commit the act of rape gosh that's a great question i i think that i think that in short i mean the reality is that you know most men still are born and raised and live their entire lives and die with a with a, a strong sense that um, that women's bodies are theirs for the taking and that girls' bodies are there for the taking and I I don't think that um, that's changed unfortunately much although certainly things are better now than they were in 1976 in in some places um, but I I think that that is. Um, and, and I think again, there's a there's a racial component to this too, which is you know, in, in this time and place, are you going to believe a, a young white man, right? I'm an oil field worker, um, or are you going to believe a, a young Latina girl um, whose whose family is is very working class? Her mother is an undocumented um, worker. Um, her 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 uncle has just earned his citizenship. Um, through his service to the country. And uh, I think that the, the sort of, the, the onus has always been on women and girls to pr- prove that things have happened to them as opposed to you know, young men and to proving that 
they didn't do things. So, mm-hmm. but the truth is, I, I don't think that that has, um, I think that, that, that what we experience now with asking women and girls to prove their stories mm-hmm. is, um, is, 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 is not so different from what we asked of them in 1976. And with the exception that it was, you know, certainly worse than, um, and more prevalent. So things are changing, but slowly. And I think it's easy to forget for those of us who live in, in, in places like Chicago or New York or Los Angeles, or maybe even in a college town like Raleigh, I think it's really easy to forget that that this country is, is full of remote, single economy towns where things haven't changed all that much, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Unfortunately, as I was reading this, I felt like it was a case of, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. Um, right. The next protagonist is Deborah Ann, a young girl who, quote, hasn't been supervised since she was eight years old, unquote, and doesn't believe that anything should change just because something has happened to this other young girl, Gloria Ramirez. Uh, Can you tell us about Deborah Ann or DA and this aspect of her personality? Well, Deborah Ann is the character who was closest in age to me at, the, at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so when I decided to set this book in 1976, um, there were a lot of pleasures that I had forgotten about. Um, and one of those pleasures was um, one of those pleasures was how easy it was to sort of disappear, to make the character disappear or to have the phones go out or, you know, the sort of lack of communication. But but the other but the other pleasure that that I drew on was the kind of freedom of movement of these children. Um, this kind of world in which children aren't carefully supervised or um, really paid attention to and and on the one hand I mean that's incredibly dangerous and terrifying and on the other hand there's a kind of freedom Deborah Ann in a lot of ways has a more freedom of movement than maybe any other character in this book primarily because no one's paying any attention her mother's gone her father's working um, the other women and girls on the street have their own um, lives to take care of and people just aren't paying attention to her and so from a narrative standpoint I was both interested in the way I could punch up the stakes and and the danger for her, but I was also interested in in how, in spite of these dangers, um, this young girl, you know, moves freely through the world, and um, and I loved that about her. Um, but it also went to something else, I think, which is this idea that when you grow up in a a place you don't always see it clearly and of course I did not see my hometown clearly for a very long time Mm -hmm. and so while on the one hand um, there could be terrible things happening I mean an an oil town is is, is, it is not it's Odessa is not unusual for an oil town um, then or now which is to say that um, you know towns that rely on oil booms and bust um, for their economy tend to be um, to have a fair amount of violence and social ills Um, part of that's the nature of the business when there's an oil boom you have a lot of strangers coming into town a lot of young men come from all over the country to try to make a lot of money quickly Um, and so it's a real transient population and so I was interested in the idea that, that violence could become so normalized 
realized because that's just the way things are right that that it wouldn't while on the one hand what happened to this young woman was a was a tragedy and a crime that a lot of characters would not see that as as a as something that could happen to them or or as something that would require them to really sort of change their um, behavior in any way. So Deborah limited by her age in what she is able to see, you know. And so while the women on that block are terrified and wanting to maybe keep a, a, a more careful eye than usual on their children. Um, for her, a, a young a girl without any adults really looking after her, um, that's that's not a that's not really part of her calculus, I guess. Right. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And finally, uh, I would like to ask you about Jenny. So, um, Jenny is Deborah Ann's mother, and she has fled her home because she is the kind of woman, quote, who understands that the man who she shared her bed with is and always will be just the boy who got her pregnant, end quote. Can you introduce our listeners to Jenny? Sure. Well, I, I will say about Jenny that um, it's it's important to note about her that she um, she has one chapter in this book, mm-hmm. and this is her chapter. Um, there are three characters in the book who get one chapter: um, Jenny, uh, Suzanne, and then at the end of the book, Carla. Um, so I I was so Glory and. Mary Rose and Deborah and and Corinne are the four characters who's who get um, recurring chapters. Each of those characters gets three chapters to tell their story. So Jenny gets this this single chapter, um, and the chapter. The, the story of this chapter is that she's leaving town. This is set on the morning that she leaves town and walks away from her daughter and her husband um, for what we don't really know. It's not clear in the in the chapter when or if she'll ever return. Um, and I was I, I was interested. I'm interested with all of these characters in this idea of um, you know becoming a mother at a really young age and the way that affects um you know a a young woman's life forever really i mean i mean jen in this chapter jenny is 20 you know 25 years old and she has a nine-year-old daughter um and and I, i i felt very strongly that you know i i felt keenly the the, the sort of pain of being such a, a young woman and feeling as if so many doors had slammed shut for you um, by virtue of becoming a mother, but also by virtue of who you were and where you were born and and what your options were. Um, and so when she says that, you know, that the, the man who shares her bed is, is really just a, the boy who got her pregnant, I mean, that's true, you know. Um, and, um, and yet here she is, um, in, in, in her view, at least, trapped in a life that she doesn't feel like she necessarily signed up for once. And, and I think the tension in this chapter is between, um, you know, her longing for a, a larger, more expansive world and and her and her love for her daughter because it's clear that she loves her daughter and it's clear, I, I think, throughout the chapter that that. The, the sorrow that that this sort of great escape is 
causing her in the moment and is going to cause her um, going forward. This is not something she'll leave behind, um, what, what the choice she's making in this moment. Right. And just a quick follow-up question, Elizabeth. As you were writing this novel, um, did you find it difficult to inhabit so many different characters? Yes. <laughs> I did. Um, you know, the, the, in, insofar as there's an origin story for any book, um, the, the probably the most clear sort of origin story for this book is that so much of this came from my years as a little girl sitting on the back porch after dinner at night listening to my mom and her girlfriends and the neighbors um, with their mixed drinks and their cigarettes talking about their lives um, and telling stories and of course in oil booms you know the stories they told were about their bosses and you know work and paying the bills and in oil bust the stories were about whose home had been foreclosed upon or who had to leave town um, and then just kind of the usual gossip of, uh, I mean, Odessa was not a small town then. It was a small city, um, but it was a small city that by virtue of of isolation and, and um, you know, southern culture, I guess, felt very much like a small town. So, so I had all of these voices of these women and girls sort of spinning around in my head. And um, I really had to work on each character individually for a long time to sort of accord to that character the 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 unique voice and and story um and and i guess depth and breadth of character that it deserved um it took me a long time to be able to write this book um i i started writing rather late in some ways i don't think i wrote my first short story until i was nearly 30 Mm. um i was a reader Um, And I was one of those readers who not only believed that books could save lives, but I was one of those readers who deeply admired writers. So I think for a long time for me, writers just sort of occupied this space of being so wise and insightful and glorious that, you know, how could this, you know, young woman from this isolated little town who was, you know, first generation college student, you know, presume to write such things. So I began writing rather late and, um, and, and I really relied on those voices, um, from my childhood. Now the characters are all fiction, um, and the story is fiction, deeply imagined fiction, but the place and the, and the voices of these women and girls, um, you know, we're very much drawn from from memory. Mm, excellent. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Listeners, I've been speaking with Elizabeth Wetmore, the author of the sensational new novel, Valentine, the New York Times bestselling novel, Valentine, published by our friends at Harper. A reminder that you can order Valentine and other books at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping for the month of April and perhaps beyond. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. Jason, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you, and your questions have been wonderful. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Elizabeth Wetmore for joining me. Copies of Valentine can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping through the month of April and perhaps beyond. 
I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support community bookstores. My name is Jason Jefferies, and this has been Bookin'.